from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Welcome. It's great to have you here for another exciting episode of the Lightning Round Badass Counseling Show. This is our Sunday show, as you well know if you're listening to it. On Thursdays, we drop an episode where I am doing counseling of one or two guests, but this is a lightning round, so I'm just taking spitfire questions here. And I've got in studio with me, KC over in the booth is waving to all of you, but only Rob and I can see her. She seems to be doing some sort of signing something. Oh, it's her middle finger. All right. And Rob is sitting next to me. He's the technical uh, producer. Rob, what is the good word of wisdom when, today? Uh, when I wave at you, Sven, I use all five fingers. <laughs> and uh, we're ready to go. Ready for liftoff. Nothing uh, can go wrong. I love it. Go wrong. <laughs> go wrong. Go wrong. Right. And so let's just go ahead and dive right in. Ah, right. Girlfriend keeps a connection with an ex on social media, says she's a people pleaser and feels bad cutting him. All right. So you wouldn't be asking this question, which technically there isn't a question there. You're wondering what the fuck to do, basically, unless it made you uncomfortable. If it didn't make you uncomfortable, you wouldn't give a shit. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you, Happy Raptor. I'm guessing you and I are in very different life situations. My girlfriend of many years, she keeps in contact with all of, not all of them, but many of her uh, ex-lovers um, and boyfriends, even her ex-husband, a uh, great guy, spends Christmas in our home, stays in our home. I love him to death. And they share a kid together. And uh, he does a lot of my uh, computer work and so forth. And uh, he knows codes to most of my things. I trust him implicitly. But I'm a 55-year-old fucking man. And my girlfriend is my age-ish. And so it's just different as we've aged and we've all been through the shit. And it's just like, Christ, if I can't trust her, I shouldn't even be in the relationship. But I understand it's different when we're younger. And it was different for me when I was younger too, all right? So you're saying, you ask the question, you know, your girlfriend keeps a connection with an ex on social, uh, says she's a people pleaser and feels bad cutting him off. So clearly she doesn't want to cut him off and clearly you do want her to cut him off. Um, my first question would be is, or my first question would be, is she engaging in any surreptitious behavior? In other words, is her engagement with this ex all above board or is it is she hiding anything? To the best of your knowledge, is she hiding anything? Furthermore, is she willing to give you full access to every single conversation, uh, whether on social or otherwise, between you and that ex? And if not, you got a problem. My girlfriend literally has the codes to my phone codes to all of my accounts. I have hers. I can't say that I've literally ever been in to any of her accounts, except once she had the, she was talking to her insurance agent from her office and she needed me to go into her account because her computer was down and get some. So I went into her email account. I couldn't give a shit. I don't have time for that bullshit in my life. Christ, if I can't trust somebody, I sure as hell don't want to be in a relationship with them. So I guess my, where I'm coming at with this is, is the problem inside of you or is the problem inside of her? If she's engaged in deception, yes, something's going on. You know, otherwise, there wouldn't be deception, right? And if it's if something's going on inside of you where nothing is going on and she is completely transparent, then it's about your fears. And the truth is, I think of I think of having exes and what they bring to someone's life as generally good. You know, my girlfriend's exes, if she wants to go and have dinner with one and just catch up or uh, she has an ex that is uh, specializes in a particular profession in which he is extraordinarily gifted and it is his profession and she's needed to rely on him uh, for his expertise in some certain aspects. In the years we've been together, and I'm like, fucking go for it. I don't have that field of expertise. You'd be nuts not to go and talk to him. I mean, he's an expert in his field, of course. And uh, she has exes who have come to her because of expertise in her field. She has exes who have actually come to me or that I've gone to for counsel. So again, it's different as you age. 
Um, but what I would encourage you to do is in your own time, in your own time of uh, sort of meditation and alone time, you need to be journaling about what your real feelings are and what your fears are. But again, if she's being transparent, I don't think you have anything to be afraid of. And you need to begin to more and more release your own fears and anxieties. If, however, she is being devious or just surreptitious or deceitful, then there's then yeah, you have every right to say, hey, this, what the fuck's going on? And then watch how she responds and to insist that she be open with you. All right, next question. What do I do when I have journaled, asked all the whys and talked it out, but I'm still not healed? You haven't asked all the whys. If you're still not healed, you ha there's still something down there that you haven't gone into. There's still deeper shit. And uh, I'm gonna assume that you have read and done all of the exercises in my book, all right? I'm gonna assume that you have and you're still frustrated. If you haven't, there you go, because that's gonna fucking hold your hand into the deepest shit. But there, if you are still unhealed, it's because there's still shit inside of you. There's still, and now it may not be the pain, it may not be the fears. Um, there are some core beliefs down there that you haven't seen yet. They're still down there, and okay, this is a really deep work. And if you want, I'd be happy to work with you. You can reach out to me for counseling, which is true of any of you. You know, go to the badasscounseling.com and read the work with me page and then reach out through the contact page. Um, and I actually guarantee my results. If I don't get the fucking results, you know, that change your life, I'll just give you your fucking money back. I, I know what I do. I'm no, I know that I'm fucking good at it. I know I'll get the results. And if I don't, why the fuck should you have to pay for it? All right. So anyway, all right, next question. Um, Here's a good one. Uh, it's sort of not really uh, deep or anything like that, but it's a it's a good question. Mold underscore ice cream asked the question, thoughts on Jordan Peterson? Are you inspired by him? Um, I really only have seen cumulatively probably 20 minutes of his stuff. Um, when I'm writing a book or doing anything, I don't read other books because I don't want somebody's ideas to get in my head. When I'm doing my work, I generally don't listen to people in my field because I need to be coming from my own center. From what I understand about Jordan Peterson, he helps a lot of people. He's controversial. He says stuff that people don't like. Well, <laughs> that's usually someone who's doing something original and is helping people if some people hate you. I'm not standing up for him. I don't know him. Uh, am I inspired by him? No, not really, because I don't know him. I'm inspired by Joseph, the work of Joseph Campbell, James Hillman, um, inspired by the work of Rabbi Harold Kushner. Uh, all of these people are dead. Um, I'm inspired by uh, some uh, men and women in my past. I'm inspired by the deep questions that my mother would pose to me daily, weekly, monthly, year after year after year. I'm inspired by my mom being the pastor's wife. All right, my mom passed away last year at the age of 93. My father passed away in 2020 at the beginning of COVID, not because of COVID, at the age of 92. And I'm inspired by both of them in so many ways. But my mom, listen to this story. I wanna tell you guys this fucking story, all right? It's a short one. My mom was the pastor's wife. That was her thing as she was raising us six kids. And then she went off. She had had her own teaching career. And then at the end of uh, sort of raising us, I'm the last kid. So I'm in junior high or whatever. And she gets goes back into her career field. And she's running education programs for massive uh, Lutheran churches in Minnesota, right? And uh, cradle to grave, total, you know, massive programs, running them, building them, growing them, et cetera. And then eventually she's writing articles in the field of early childhood education, uh, within the church, early childhood spiritual development, which is what my one of my areas of expertise and background is in. And uh, and then she's teaching at the largest uh, Lutheran seminary in the world, right? Adjunct faculty and so forth. Anyway, rewind the tape back there, 1970s, all right? I'm just a little shit, right? And I came home from church one morning, I remember. And you got to understand, when you're the preacher's kid and you live in the parsonage across the street from a large suburban church in Fridley, Minnesota... <laughs> Sunday morning, I was up at 4.30 in the morning. I went and did my paper out, as did my siblings. And my dad was always, dad, the pastor, who was going to be preaching later and doing three fucking services and interacting with people for hours. He's out there, you know, driving us to our paper outs or dropping this off, helping us stuff the Sunday newspaper, all this shit, right? And so I've already delivered my fucking newspaper out. At the first service, I would have been the acolyte. So I'm in there for, for the whole fucking service. Second service, I would acolyte at the beginning 
And then I would go down to Sunday school and then I would go back up and, and put my robes back on with John Emerson and we would acolyte at the end then and do our different duties. And then I'd have to acolyte for third service. Well, third service, I had already been to fucking Sunday school, middle of third service. John and I, John Emerson and I would robe up for third service, have the prayer with the pastors, go out, do the candles, do the processional down the aisle. Then we'd go in the sacristy, we'd take off our robes, we'd run over to the parsonage where I, you know, I, my home, we'd watch an episode of Batman, Right after Batman, we'd run back across the street and we'd put our robes back on. We'd go sneak right into the side pew right there up in the chancel. And then we'd do the candles and the recessional, carry the cross out, et cetera, boom, done. So by the time I fucking come home from church, you know, I've been fucking working since 4.30 in the morning. It's 12 noon. It's like, come on, mom, where's my food? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, we, you know, we had a big family dinner, roast beef, potatoes, carrots, the whole fucking thing. So I came home once. And mind you, mom's had responsibilities too. She was up with us fixing the hot chocolate. She was up stuffing newspapers with us, you know, at 4.30 in the morning, four in the morning for my siblings who had bigger paper routes. They had to get up earlier than I did, right? Um, until I got to be 10, 11, 12, whatever. Point is this, mom's been busting her ass all morning too, right? And she's been over and pastor's wives, you know, she probably taught some classes and was counseling people all fucking morning. Big fucking church. I get back, I'm sitting in the little nook in our kitchen, mom's paring the potatoes and asking me to, you know, cut the carrots or whatever. And I was telling her one Sunday about something that happened in Sunday school. And I told her something that was said in Sunday school. Some thought, some belief, some something. And my mother set down her paring knife and she turned to me. And I can still remember the kitchen because we had this hideous orange paint on the nook part of the wall. And I can see that and I can see mom turning in her apron, gray hair. And so she's in her 50s now, right? She's a salty old pastor's wife, six kids. She turns to me, sets her paring knife down and she says very seriously, she looks me in the eye and she says, now this is the pastor's wife. Her whole life, I mean, and my parents weren't offensively Christian. They were just good fucking people who believed in God and wanted to help people and all this. She turns to me and she says, Sven, don't believe everything you hear in church. Holy shit. You think about that. You just, I was asked the question right now. Somebody basically said, are you inspired by, you know, Jordan Peter? And I said, Peterson, I was listening to people I am inspired by. I'm inspired by a pastor's wife born in 1928, raised during the Great Depression and World War II, worked on a farm. And when she left the family farm at age 16, after graduating from high school, goes off to college and her father had to downsize that farm. She was the middle of five kids, uh, six kids, but she was the last one left of the workers. The younger ones were too small. He had to downsize his farm because he lost his best worker. So this is a tough woman. This is a savvy, smart, wise woman who is committed to the church, committed to her husband, all this. And she turns to her son, her youngest son, and says, Sven, don't believe everything you hear in church. That inspires me. People who are committed to something that can simultaneously have the humility to question it, have the humility to teach their children to question truths. That inspires me. That inspires me to question my own work. That inspires me to question every single one of my confirmation biases. Shit like that. People like that. Courageous people inspire me. Even the simplest people who none of us know inspire me. Going to work every day. I picked up this kid, Matt, who works at the grocery store near my house. He was, uh, I was coming back from the gym the other day and uh, he was standing out at the bus station or at the bus stop going to his, his job at the grocery store. He says he's been working there like seven years, some shit. And I love this kid. I see him all the time. He's like, you know, mid twenties. Sweet kid. And I stopped him. I picked him up. I said, you know, shitty day today, man. He says, ah, I'm all right. I'm all right. And giving him a ride. And the guy works hard. And he's, he's a musician trying to make it in the New York City area and going down to Brooklyn with his gig. He's in a metal band. Just the, the sweetest fucking guy. That inspires me. You know who inspires me? Artists. Writers, poets, sculptors, painters. I, I, I dated a girl who dealt in micro drawings. She would make these little drawings with in, incredible ornate detail within a one inch or a one inch by one inch square, or two inch by, that inspires me. People who have the courage to stand up for what they believe in, even when I don't believe in it, that inspires me. People who have the courage and I need you, especially the young ones, you inspire me with your courage. You inspire me with your passion. That gets me going. Great fucking rap. I love it because you guys are fucking cutting edge. Great fucking country that tells an amazing story inspires me. 
I went and saw a movie last night and I walked out of it, out of it and it just blew my mind. I'm like, wow, it inspires me. Maybe not for the reason that the, the maker producers intended, but it inspires people courageously grinding it out, raising kids every day on their own, whatever it is. So what inspires you? Each one of you, I'm serious. What the fuck inspires you? Who inspires you? Or are you uninspired? And if you're uninspired, it's because you got so much fucking pain inside of you. So much shit from your past that you got to get out of you. Because the way to live alive is to live inspired with true aliveness. And to feel that coming off of people and to live in that sense of gratitude. Like, holy shit, this is incredible. All right. Took a little deviation there. And we will be right back with more Badass Counseling right after this. I counseled with Badass Counseling for about four months and Sven completely turned my life around. He kicked my butt. No shit. He made me do homework too, but I was so ready for a change that I just did it all. I'm telling you, he changed my life. Thank you so much, Badass Counseling. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Yes, I am back. Yes, we are back. I'm here with my production team, Rob and KC, who are just so great to work with. I want to welcome everyone tuning in from around the world, from uh, all around Wales. We have folks listening and we have folks uh, checking in from Japan and so forth and all across the United States and Canada and Latin America. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. And the next question, here we go. All right. Can't get my teen to talk about what happened with her ex and quote unquote friends. How to get counseling when refuses, when refuses. Okay, I'm gonna put in some pronouns because I know you guys only get like 150 letters here. I can't get my teen to talk about what happened with her ex and friends. And again, um, NB puts that in quotes, friends in quotes. All right, this is a good question. In other words, you're wanting your child to talk it out. My first question to you, if you were my client, is why do you want your child to talk it out? If you were to be totally honest with me, is it for you or is it for them? Is it because you feel on the outside and you just want to know? And it, or and it's not an either or. It's not just, well, it's for me or it's for her. What percentage is because you want to know your curiosity or because you're feeling cut out of your teenager's life? And that's a hard one. That's a hard one for all of us, whether you're dealing with it with your teenager or in their 20s or in their 40s. It's hard to feel like you're not in, in the inner circle of your child or your adult child's life. So if you were to be totally honest, is it 20% about me and 80% for my kid? Is it 0% about me and uh, you know 100% for my kid? Is it 100% for you and it has nothing to do with your kid? Okay, answer that question first. You ask the question, I can't get my teen to talk about what happened with her ex and friends. How do I get her to counseling when she refuses? Okay, um, so the first thing is, is if it's about you, then you need to deal with your shit. And furthermore, uh, a couple of things on this notion of getting kids to talk or open up to us. Um, I recall one of the things that my mother, I was just talking about her a minute ago, uh, that she and dad, but especially mom, because she was on the front lines for most of our younger years, because you know dad was working, mom was the one we were interacting with most. So dad was very present and active in our lives. Um, mom said, I recall when my older siblings had gone into their 20s and so forth, she literally flat out told me, I said, well, how come, I asked her one time, how come you don't ask about such and such in my life? And she said, Sven, I've taken the approach that when my children are ready to ask, to talk with me or when my children need something or want something from me, they will ask. And that's really interesting because it, 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 it basically implies that she always used to ask and might've felt cut out or felt like she was intruding. And, and everybody who's ever had a teenager knows that you're going to ask them about shit and they're going to say, ah, fuck you, old man. I don't want to talk about her mom. I don't want to, or, uh, you know, you get cut out and it's an unpleasant feeling. So for many parents, you stop trying that's okay. Um, but for her, it was also that um, she didn't want her children to feel like she was intruding, right? But it's also a great lesson to learn because it forces responsibility onto the child, onto the adult child, that if you want to talk about something, 
in your inner life. I'm respecting you know, uh, your inner life. So if you need me for anything, just ask. I'm happy to talk about it, but just ask. So you ask this question. I can't get my teen to talk about it. Well, why do you need your teen to talk about it? Is it because you feel cut out or is it because you believe it's in your child's best interest? Well, then you go on to ask the question, how do I get her to counseling when she refuses? So clearly you believe your teen needs counseling. So you believe that this is really afflicting your teen. So your desire to get your child into counseling uh, would seem to be a good thing. If it's afflicting them, if they're feeling in pain or acting differently, um, they're not opening up to you, um, which is their right. Um, and they're not wanting counseling. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm a little um, persnickety when it comes to kids and counseling. And if a child is under the age of 18 and that child breaks their arm, does the child get a choice of whether or not they're going to go to the fucking doctor? Okay. No. Now, there are certain religions where they don't do that. Well, it's setting religion aside, all right? I, I don't, I've taken on the approach of, as an aside here, I've taken on the approach of my parents' generation. You don't talk religion or politics. So I don't talk religion or politics in my personal life or on the show. So apart from yours, there are religions that wouldn't go to a doctor. I respect all religions, et cetera. So I'm not touching on that. That aside, um, if your child breaks their arm, do they have a choice of whether or not they're going to the emergency room? No, they don't. I'm taking you. Well, here we go. Rock and roll, hoochie coo. And the mere fact that we give a child a choice when it comes to mental health, a child under the age of 18, the mere fact that you would give a child a choice, I personally, if I'm being totally honest with you, I think it demeans, it undermines the weight of uh, mental and soul issues, spiritual issues, the shit going on inside of a person. The child doesn't have a choice. The child at 16, at 12, at 17, in grievous issues doesn't know what's best for them always. And there are certain times when the parent has to take control. But that means the parent willing to endure backlash, willing to endure the child hating them. I don't give a shit. (laughs) You don't want to get your arm reset? You don't want to cast? I don't give a shit. I'm responsible for your long-term health, child. I like to think of it this way. The child sees the small term. I'm fine. I don't want to open up. Fuck you. I don't have a problem. The child sees the small issue, but the parent sees the big issue. And there's a bigger issue than what that child has the ability to see. And here's the thing. Those issues from childhood, from teenage years, they metastasize. The child thinks they have it under control, but they don't know what the fuck control is. They don't know that just packing that shit down and not talking about it or just talking about it with your knucklehead friends isn't enough. Not when you're fucking 16. And I mean, look at look at what we do in my work in, in in these lightning rounds. Look what I do in my counseling rounds. Look what I do in my practice and in my books. What am, what is the fundamental fucking thing that I'm dealing with with every single client? I'm fundamentally dealing with pain from childhood that was never allowed to get out, that was never forced to come out, where there was never a parent active in drawing it out, or never an adult, a significant adult influence. We're in in 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. We're dealing with shit from childhood. So you've got a child who you can visibly see has gone through significant trauma and they're saying, hey, I got it. No, you don't got it. This is the shit that your daughter is going to be dealing with later when she's 30, all right, when she's 40. So I personally am a fan of young lady. I really don't care. You can go in there and you can sit with this therapist and never open up, whatever. I encourage you to open up. I encourage you to heal. You don't ever have to tell me anything that's going on in there whatever, give them the autonomy of privacy and you need to respect that, even though legally it is your right. Um, But leave that up to the kid. But no, it's not. To me, if a child is going through significant emotional trauma and they won't open up to me or to an adult whom I trust as a parent, so to uh, one of my siblings or one of their spouses, my girlfriend and their family, um, they said, the spouses said to each other, they said, listen, if one of our kids comes to you or whatever, or your spouse, and trust them and opens up, that's fine. They, you don't have to tell me about it as long as they have someone in the family they trust. Or if your child has a, a significant role model, favorite teacher or pastor or something like that, they go to and open up, great, okay? But that shit has to come out. And so, yeah, your kid should be in fucking counseling. I, and I, for me personally, for my kid, and this is, a, you know, this is a gut check. 
you know, hard call in parenting. But for me, there is no fucking choice because mental, spiritual mental health is just as important, if not more so than physical health. And you would not give your child a choice if it came to, you know, resetting a broken arm or something. you're going to the fucking doctor. All right, next question. To which Becky the Bunnies says, if you force your child, they won't work on the issues. Just saying, I disagree. I disagree. There are great therapists out there that if you get that kid in front of a great fucking therapist or in front of a, you know, a, a spiritual leader who or spiritual counselor who's really fucking good at their work, oh, they'll get that kid to fucking open up. There are people who specialize in getting kids to open up. I'm not one of them. Am I really good with, you know, kids under 18? Sure, I've had plenty of them. Am I best with that? No, that's not my field of expertise. Am I great, you know, over 18 in college years? Oh, fuck yeah. Like I said, I've had plenty of young people clients, but that is a gift. People who work with uh, young people under age 18 or so with significant trauma and so forth, that's a fucking gift. My hat's off to those people because you do some shit I can't do, all right? I mean, it's like fucking working on a car engine. I respect the fuck out of my mechanic because he's doing shit. She's doing shit. I actually had a uh, woman for a long time. They're doing shit I can't do. But anyway, yeah, there are people. And I, so I disagree on that point. But anyway, um, oh, I guess we're on a kid run tonight. Here we go. What is the biggest emotional struggle of a child who is constantly showered in gifts and luxury? Oh, that's a great question. To everyone around that child, she, that kid doesn't have a fucking problem. They get gifts and luxury and their mom's favorite or their the golden child, dad's golden child, or you know they're always getting praise for their accomplishments. That kid doesn't have any emotional struggles. Bullshit. Bullshit. Go, go into my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, and read the chapter on the golden child. Read that fucking chapter. There are a few things in worse in life, in childhood and upbringing, and even well into adulthood. And trust me, someone who's in the family of a golden child, that shit doesn't go away when you're a teenager, does it, right? You still have the resentment or there's still my dad's favorite kid when you're in your fucking 50s, ain't it? Right, right. Okay, so, but you ask the question, what's the biggest emotional struggle of a child who's constantly showered in gifts and luxury? Pressure. Very often the person who's a golden child or who's always getting the praise or the gifted athlete or the gifted musician or the gifted fucking whatever that kid's gift is in childhood and the family chooses to, yo, this kid has a dream to go be an actor and so we're all gonna move out to Hollywood for this kid and then the other kid feels like the forgotten kid and if you're the forgotten kid, few things worse than feeling like the forgotten kid, right? Or it's all about the other kid. But the truth is there's pain inside of that other kid too that you just can't see and you think they have it all. no. I talk about it as being raised in a sales mentality. That that golden child, that person uh, getting all the spiffs, as we talked about it in sales, they have to hit their numbers. In other words, their worth is tied up in success. That they're not loved for who they are. They're loved for who they are expected to be. Even the kid, and I'm speculating here because you haven't given me more on this. This person is showered in gifts and luxury. What's the emotional struggle? In all likelihood, there are expectations for who that person could be. Imagine if you're the kid being showered in gifts and luxury. Oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, you're so beautiful. Oh, you're so smart. What if that kid has a desire being told you're so wonderful, you're so beautiful, you, you can do great things, you could be president someday, you could, you know, run a big company. What if that kid just, and I forgive me for using the word just, but just wants to have a family, raise a kid, and, you know, have his own electrician practice, you know, wants to just live a fun life with his wife and, and you know, modest life? Or what if that kid you know, and the parent says, you shouldn't work at all. And that kid says, I want to run a fucking company someday. They're, con they're placed in the world where if you're working, it's seen as less than. I know that seems weird. But the point is, is there are pressures. With those gifts and luxury, being that kid, there are pressures. And so the expectation is don't let me down or the gifts and luxury will wear out. You get, you, you, you get addicted to the golden handcuffs. I get, I, I have so many people who say, well, you know, I want to be my authentic self, but I don't want to let go of mom and dad's praise. I don't want to let go of the gifts or the financial support. And so I stay stuck. Yeah, exactly. You're stuck because the gifts are nice. The money is nice. The financial support is nice, but you'll never have the courage to be authentic until you have the courage to walk away from what you believe uh, you'll lose if you become your authentic self. That's where the rubber hits the road. So the emotional struggles of someone being showered in gifts and luxury is the struggle that they 
probably feel they can't be their full selves, that they're getting praise as long as they're doing uh, what is expected by the person who's showering with the luxury. All right, next question. Oh, wow. Here we go. Right on the heels of that, Emily asks the question or makes the comment. That was my position in my family. Dad, soccer star. Um, and then she does, does a little emoji of an eye roll there. Dad, soccer star, started abusing me when I didn't want to. Oh, my God. I cannot even begin to count for you the number of um, kids that I've counseled, teens, 20s, 30s, 50-year-olds, who were the star. And, you know, since soccer became a big sport, you know, in America, dad's a little soccer star, mom's a little soccer star, or, you know, whatever happened to baseball and football. But anyway, um, I'm kidding. I love soccer. I played soccer. Started abusing me when I didn't want to. That's exactly right. The expectation to be who dad wants me to be or mom wants me to be. And you're only getting my fucking praise as long as you're doing what I want. The difficulty to break out of that because the, you have to understand what's the underlying message. Ask yourself this question, people. What is the underlying message if I'm only going to give you love when you're the star? What's the underlying message if I'm only going to give you love when you're doing what I want you to do? Whether it's out there succeeding and getting perfect grades and, and going and being a soccer star and maybe becoming a you know minor league baseball player and then maybe make it to the majors or whatever it is, becoming a black belt in karate or whatever it is. What's the underlying message being conveyed to the child that you'll get my love, you'll get my praise, you'll get my attention, you'll get my approval and my acceptance when you're doing what I want and I will withdraw it when you're doing something else, when you're not doing what I want. What is the underlying message? The underlying message is who you are doesn't matter. Who you really are. Oh, you matter as long as you're doing what I want. You matter insofar as you serve a function in my life. All of this is the underlying message. You matter only insofar as you serve the function that I expect you to serve in my life, and that is to gratify my own ego, to make me look like a good parent. Oh, fucking hell. And that's a parent who is using the child to pour love into the parent's love cup rather than the parent pouring love into the child's love cup. I'm going to use you as a way to gratify my ego. And, and listen, I'm going to be fucking honest with you. As a, as a person, as a parent who has had kids who were successful in sports and academics and music and are both successful now in their 20s and 30s, it gets very hard to check my own ego out of the equation. And, and you get praise when your kid succeeds. succeeds. You get praise and it feels good. And you sort of, it's easy to draft off of your kids and to make it about your own ego, right? And, you know, the humble brag, the parent brags on Facebook and, or when it's out on the soccer field and your kids so, scores and everybody's patting you on the back, it feels good and you want more of that shit. And every parent will say, no, it's not about that. No, no, that doesn't matter to me. Bullshit. You're not being fucking honest. Every parent brags about their kids. Nothing wrong with that. But it's a whole different animal when you are contorting that child's behavior to suit your ego needs or when you are withholding love when they're not meeting your expectations or worse, in the case of April Emily Lemon Art, the person asking this question, it's worse when they abuse you when you don't do what they want. The underlying message is so crystal clear and pressed so deeply into that child's cement of their soul, the wet cement, and then it hardens. You, who you really are, the calling of your own soul doesn't matter. Fuck you, child. Oh, yeah, you want to fuck somebody up for a long time? Give them that fucking message. And then in adulthood, we have to go back and we have to go down to those core messages and begin pulling them out so they're not corrupting and infecting the rest of your life. All right, next question. What have you got, people? All right, okay, There's and there it is. There's the great follow-up. When my kids aren't doing well and have a hard time coping, I feel responsible. Of course, Kathy. Of course. Of course you do. That is uh, the parent's uh, dilemma on one hand, but it's, that's what love is. We feel responsible. We want to take their pain away and so forth. And there are times when we do need to do that, but then there are also times when it's part of life. And think about what a wonderful lesson it is to see our kids struggling. What a wonderful thing it is to see our kids not doing well. 
What a wonderful thing. What wonderful preparation for adulthood. And our job in that situation is to help the child to just listen and let them get their feelings out and not fixing. Don't fix them. They They actually don't need it. More often than not, if they can get out all their pain and all their sadness and all their frustration, they'll come to their own sense of revolution, or, uh, resolution. And you can inject some words of wisdom and so forth and, and you know, and say, here's just something to think about, right? But of course we feel responsible, but what a wonderful lesson to learn because the truth is there are gonna be times later in life when your child isn't doing well and where you're either not around to fix them or they're a fucking adult and they need to learn how to self-soothe. They need to learn how to solve their own problems. They need to learn that having a hard time doesn't mean the end of the world. Having a hard time doesn't mean I'm not loved or lovable. That hard times are part of life. So learning to deal with them on small levels as a kid, even though those small things like we lost the soccer game and I gave up the game winning goal. Oh my God, I'm heartbroken. Or my, my, uh, you know, my, son lost his girlfriend. Ah, I feel so bad. Good. Good. Feel bad. Get your own feelings out on your own time. Don't step in and fix the kid because you feel bad. Be there and, and invite the child to open up. And if they don't want to, they don't want to, but say, I'm here if you want to. Let them do it. Don't make it about you. All right, But yeah, we do feel responsible. And that's our own self-work and journaling work. I need to... Uh, journal on and and get out my own feelings about this equation because it's not about me, right? Um, But it's a great, children failing and having their heart broken in the teen years is fantastic. It's wonderful in the long, uh, in the long game, in the greater scheme of things, because they're encountering it now. It's just like a child being heard, uh, being told the word no when they're seven or four or nine And it's okay. It's good for them to hear the word no and yet to simultaneously know they're still loved because otherwise they'll equate no with I'm not loved and lack of sense of worth. Now, if I'm not getting what I want, something must be wrong with me. Well, what the fuck? You want something that'll fuck you up in adulthood? That's one, right? Um, So yeah, Kathy, you say when my kids aren't doing well and have a hard time coping, I feel responsible. That's right. And there are things you can do. My mom... When she saw that in me and when I was about 13, she said, Sven, maybe you should start journaling. And maybe I didn't take her advice right away, but shortly thereafter, I've been journaling my whole life and that's my way of fleshing out my own stuff. She says, you don't have to talk about it with me, Sven, that's okay. But at least start journaling. And the truth is I had other people in my life that I could talk about, adults that I could talk about my problems with. But more often than not, nobody I talked to nobody more than her. So there is that. And you wanna know why? because she never forced it. She never forced herself on me. She never pressed it. She always gave me room. If you want to talk about it, I'm here. It's a soft sell. It's not the hard sell, the intrusive, I got to fix you bullshit. All right, next question. What have we got? What do I write in journals? Because I just write what comes to mind naturally. Yeah, that's no, that's and that's a great start. Um, there are actually books out there for as journaling prompts. My book is one of them, but mine, those journaling prompts have a specific job, a specific focus, and that is taking you deeper in your healing. Writing what comes to mind is good. The, the most fundamental thing to understand when it comes to journaling for the purpose of healing and doing deep inner soul work is the, the goal of journaling isn't to capture your thoughts, to capture your thoughts, it's to release your feelings. And part of the way we release our feelings is to Capture your thoughts first, or at least write out the situation, write out the thoughts and so forth, but then asking questions like, why? Why did I do that? Or what the hell was really going on inside of me at the time? Or what am I really feeling right now? What was I feeling back then? The goal is to always take yourself, well, what was I feeling? But what does that feel like? Using feeling words. And um, so what do I write in your in your journals? I strongly recommend that you just get the book. The um, and I'm actually writing another one. I'm about two thirds of the way through the first draft. I'm writing a follow up on that exact issue. Uh, journaling questions, a sort of daily meditation uh, with a quote or something, a, a thought to, make, to challenge you, and questions attached to it that you can then use as journaling prompts to flush it out and bring you to your greatest life and peace and real fire for life. And we'll be right back with more badass counseling right after this. My best friend made me listen to some podcast, said it had blown her away. So we listened to a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show together. All I can say is, wow. First podcast I had ever listened to. Now it's my addiction. If you haven't done it yet, you need to subscribe to the Badass Counseling Show. 
Now back to more badass counseling with Sven. Okay, we are back with yet another exciting lightning round. I love all the questions and it's so rapid fire and you guys just keep me on my toes. Boom, 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 one topic to the next, it's great. Um, And so I've got one here from Tina. She asks, how do you deal with parents who always have and still do favor a sibling over you? So this is piggybacking on what we were talking about earlier, the golden child. We had a question or two on that. And uh, so now we're getting it from the other side, the sibling of the golden child. And I'm just going to take this one uh, quickly. How do you deal with parents who have and still do favor a sibling over, uh, over you? I am a big fan of when people are caught in the situation of what do I do when it involves another person? I am always a fan of putting your truth out there just as cleanly and as plainly as possible. But before to the person, you ask, what do you do? So clearly you're wanting to take some action. You wouldn't want to be taking some action unless you were wanting a change in their behavior. They're wanting to treat you as well, as well as they treat your sibling. Before you ever do that, what I strongly recommend is pen to paper. Write them a letter that you do not send to them cannot send to them. The purpose of this letter is for you to flush out all of your feelings and all of the things you really want to say to them. Even if you never say any of them to them, flush it out first. And you know what happens when we do a flush, like a letter writing first? A, it calms us the fuck down. And if you need to write that letter four fucking times, write it four fucking times because eventually it'll calm you down because you're getting all this shit out. That's what journaling is. That's what letter writing is. It gets the shit out. Then you're going to have clarity of what you really want to say. And the goal is always, even if you don't present it this way to them, distill it down to your one sentence. What is your one takeaway? That if you get lost in an argument with them, when you're saying to them what your truth is and what you need, you'll know what to come back to. Always have your one truth. It's like if you're giving a presentation and you're fearful of getting lost in a presentation at work, always know your one takeaway away and keep coming back to that in one sentence or less. So to finish up the question, how do you deal with parents who always have and still do favor a sibling over you? Put your truth out there to your parents. Put it out there and say, no, this is how I'm being treated and I need this to change. I need you to treat me as you treat my sibling. It's just not fair. And you can pretty much count on the fact that if there is a disparity in how you've been treated all these years, that they are either not going to see or not want to see your truth. So they are either going going to deflect, defend, deny, dodge. Or maybe they'll say, oh yeah, you're right, we're sorry, but we need to move on from that now. In other words, you got a, you know, you got a $10 apology for a $1,000 crime, right? Doesn't quite work. But in all likelihood, they're not gonna see it and they're not gonna wanna see it. So then you're left with the ugly question of what the fuck do I do when I've got parents who clearly don't give a shit about my feelings and my authentic um, complaints and aren't interested in treating me fairly and as they treat my sibling my sibling. So then you've got to ask the fucking question, what do I need to do for me? Do you have the courage? Do you need to? And it's not just putting it out there once. I'm betting you've put it out there to your parents many times. Do it one more time, as truthfully as you can, as clearly and as plainly as you can. And then if they don't do it, you've got to be willing to ask yourself, why are you keeping someone in your life who doesn't treat you fairly? And in all likelihood, you're keeping them in your life because you're still wanting something from them. Well, we know you're wanting something from them. This question, implicit in this question is you want them to treat you better. So they still have power over you. They still have power to make you miserable. And you, you guys have heard me say it before. As long as somebody has something you want, they have power over you. They have the power to withhold it. They have the power to keep you fucking miserable. And at some point, and you do what you want, but at some point in life, Uh, a great many of us have to come to the realization that I'm never going to get my needs met by my parents. And that's an ugly day. It's a sad day. It's a sad realization, but it's also liberating because in that you also realize how much your fucking life you've wasted contorting, trying to win the approval and the acceptance and the acknowledgement of the pain they've caused and maybe that uh, apology, how much life you've uh, spent and how much energy you've spent contorting yourself, trying to get something from them. And so when you finally say, enough. When you finally say, I'm never going to get it. I have a 42 year pattern of behavior. I'm never going to fucking get that. Why am I still doing this? And you set yourself free of that. You unlock the shackles. You're finally liberated to live your own life your way without concern for what they're going to say or what they're going to think. You can finally be yourself. But so you ask, how do you deal with parents who basically won't meet your needs? Put it out there one more time. And if if they keep denying or dodging, move on with your life. And if you need to put up some boundaries or have less interaction with them, then that's what you got to do. And you, but it, at the root is letting go of wanting something from them. All right, next question. Why can't I let go and have a good time or laugh and giggle anymore? And I think 
you had asked a question earlier, something about, I don't see myself as depressed, but I haven't laughed in a long time. Uh, so I'm gonna put those two questions together. Um, yeah, there's pain inside of you. There's sorrow inside of you. And so, the, and it's funny you state it this way that I haven't had a laugh or a good time or a giggle in a long time because one of the things I tell clients that I work with, whether they're in a massive depression or grieving massive loss or a profound heartbreak or something like that, um, or it, just extreme uh, life after a childhood of hard shit, um, one of the things I tell them is that um, if you do the inner work of continuing to flush out all the pain, fears, and bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself, especially those core beliefs, the more you flush that out, the more you get it out and get it out and get it out, you're going to have the experience one day where you randomly find yourself laughing and you are aware of it. It's like, what just happened? I'm, I'm just, holy shit, I'm, I'm spontaneously laughing. And it's gonna surprise you. You're gonna be outside one day and you're gonna realize, fuck, the sun is shining. Like, I don't remember shining before. And I know it's like, oh, colors are brighter and oh, you know, birds sound happier. It, you know, it's that experience. It really is. The more you get out that inner ship, because that is clouding your experience of life. It is dragging you down from the inside. So if you haven't laughed or had a good time, it's because you got shit inside you that has to come out. All right, next question. What about a partner that treats you as a child? Um, anybody that you are in an intimate relationship who is mistreating you, you have an obligation to bring it to their attention. You are mistreating me. You are treating me in a way that is hurtful and I don't like it and I need it to change. This has to stop. And if you bring it to someone you love that you're in a relationship with, I've had to do this before in the past with a friend or two, and bring it to their attention that I felt taken advantage of or that I feel like you're mistreating me. I've had to do that in love relationships before, but you have an obligation to put it out there. You have an obligation also to hold your boundaries. See, this is the thing. And, and I'm not trying to blame the victim here, but there is something going on inside of you that has conditioned to you to believe that you have to allow this and you don't have to allow this. You have to stop it. But if you're not willing to stand up and endure the backlash of them saying, no, I don't, no, I don't, or no, you're the problem. You treat me like a child or um, fuck you, I'm gonna do it anyway. If you're not willing to endure the backlash, it's going to persist. You do have a responsibility to stand up for yourself. And if they don't change, that indicates to me they don't either don't want to own it, they don't want to own their culpability, they don't want to change, they don't they claim they don't see the problem, or maybe they don't see the problem. In all of those cases, you have a responsibility to hold your boundaries and to educate them as to how you are feeling when they're treating you that way. But then if they still do not change over time, you have a responsibility to yourself to walk the fuck away. Why would you stay in a relationship with someone who deliberately, willfully mistreats you, treats you in a way that hurts you? It's your obligation to tell them how you're being hurt. It's their obligation to fucking stop. Or if, if I have a partner coming to me saying, Sven, you're hurting me when you do this, I have an obligation to stop. And if I don't, I'm basically saying, fuck you to the other person. I don't wanna change. I don't have to change, fuck you. My agenda right? And if someone's treating you that way, get the fuck out because that shit will only get worse. That problem will only metastasize over time. Then you've got an even bigger problem two, five, 20 years from now. All right. Next question. Does journaling allow you to process emotions more intensely? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people say, well, Sven, I don't have any memories. I don't have any uh, emotions from my past that I can journal. That's because very often when we're children or when we're younger, those emotions were so fucking intense that we had to, our brain does sort of this fucking involuntary amnesia thing and we forget them and our, our past becomes whitewashed. And the way to unlock those is just start with the most recent thing. As, early, as recently as this afternoon, you know, somebody cut me off on the road and it pissed me off. All right, there, now we've got one emotion. Start by unpacking that one, journaling about that one, flushing it out, boom, that's one. And then you'll think of another one from two weeks ago when you know your you know buddy said something that pissed you off okay that's the second one the more you begin to unlock and release those the more you're making room for a little bit more a little bit more to come up and before you know it you'll find yourself back there but here's the thing there are other tools noah besides journaling you ask the question does journaling allow you to process emotions more intensely yes it does but there are other tools for people who want to heal and process the shit from their past if you don't want to feel them so intensely or so intensely for so long and basically relive the entire goddamn thing all over again and again and again. There are tools to make it go quicker. 
There really are accelerated uh, techniques, and I talk about these in the book. There's a hole in my love cup. Because the truth is you can heal from this and it doesn't have to take forever. People who have been in counseling for 10, 15, 20, 25 years and feel like it's still not helping them or they still haven't healed from a lot of their shit, there are some things that do require long-term care. I'm not disputing that. But there's so many people saying, well, it's years and years and years. It's like, no, it doesn't have to take that long. You have to go deeper. And there are tools for doing doing so. There are techniques, methods for doing so. And mine is one of them, the Badass Counseling Method. And that's what I talk about in the book. But yeah, you can fucking do it. All right, next question. How do you deal with a loved one committing homicide in a psychosis? My therapist isn't helping. All right, get a new therapist, first and foremost. Second of all, there are hotlines and you need to be in touch with them and there are groups, believe it or not. There are groups for where there has been uh, violence uh, in the home or done by a family member and so forth. Find yourself one. You need to actively... You need to actively find counseling for yourself. But you want to know how do you deal with a loved one committing homicide in a psychosis. Uh, there's so much going on here. I, I want to take this moment to say, to tell you guys that I'm going to stay in my lane on this one. Psychosis is a mental illness. It is a very, very, very serious mental illness. I am not a psychologist. I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a mental health professional. I'm a soul counselor. My work is different. I have worked with literally thousands of families over the years who are dealing with the trauma of having a mentally person in their own family or interacting or raising and so forth. So I can work the ancillary stuff, but the actual person in the psychosis, this is outside of my lane. And I need you to know, you're asking, how do you deal with a loved one committing homicide in a psychosis? That is outside of my lane. You need to get, if your therapist isn't helping, you need to get, a mental health therapist who will help. There are groups available to help. Psychosis is nothing to mess around with. And homicide obviously is, I mean, that's outside everyone's lane except the lawyers and the police and so forth. Uh, but psychosis, this is hardcore stuff and um, requires the real professionals on it. And the truth is there's so much uncertainty on some mental illnesses that you really need to be specific. This, the whole notion of psychosis, homicide, loved one, out of my lane and you got to go find yourself a better therapist who does know a psychologist or a psychiatrist who can counsel you in your interactions. You can also call NAMI. You can find them at NAMI.org. Again, that's N-A-M-I.org and they have resources available and there are other resources available for the situation. All right, next question. When seeking therapy, should I go social worker, psychologist, etc. for similar questions here? Um, this is a question I get regularly. How do you find a good therapist? Or how do you find a therapist that suits your needs? Um, and first of all, as with anything, before you buy a new air conditioner for your house, you do the research, right? You get online, you go to Consumer Reports, shit like that. And as far as what your needs are, you have an assessment of what your needs are. It's the same way. Go online and start assessing, you know, Googling. Just start there. Simple Google searches and so forth. Um, and then talking to people you know who have had similar experiences and what their experience has been and what they would recommend. Talk to your general practitioner and ask what they would recommend. You asked for my, um, my feedback on this. When seeking therapy, should I go social worker, psychologist, et cetera, for similar questions? There are great, great counselors in all those different fields. There really are, all right? And I have encountered them particularly in my work. Um, but I personally, and you're asking me, other people would have a different answer to this and I respect their answers. You're asking me, and I literally just put up a TikTok post on this, I wanna say yesterday. And my response is this, and you asked me, so I'm gonna give you my answer. Somebody who pushes you, somebody who challenges you with deep questions, somebody who gives you feedback, somebody calls out and calls you out and says, sounds like bullshit to me. I gotta be honest, I love you, but that sounds like bullshit. Or my own natural curiosity is leading me to think this. In other words, somebody who's pushing you, if they're just letting you coast along on the surface, just float along, get yourself a new therapist and get yourself a new therapist now. Which begs the question, well, how do you sniff that or suss that out early on? You know, when you're just talking to them. In your conversation with this person, if they'll give you a 15 minute conversation, very often a therapist you're considering will give you a 15 or 20 minute uh, conversation, do they push you in that? And you, sh you should know in the first session, do they push you? Do they challenge you? Do they have insight? Do they give feedback? Uh, that's one thing to look for. All right, next question. Uh, in seeking help, like trying on shoes, keep trying them on until you find the right fit. Amen to that. 
Um, of course, the downside here is, you know, you got to pay that fucking, you know, 250 bucks for their first session. And uh, before you know, so in a way you've already bought, you could have bought like three pairs of fucking shoes for that price. But your point is well taken and I agree with you. Uh, you know, just keep trying. All right. All right, I'm gonna look at this one here. Can you give us one example of the power of a specific situation you were in to journal? So the power of journaling in a specific situation I was in um, and focus uh, journaling. Um, I, I think I hear you asking, do I have a situation where I was in a, yes, yes, yes. Um, which one should I use? Every single failure of my life, every single fucking heartbreak of my life. So my first wife left me, uh, divorced me. We had two kids together, broke my fucking heart. I spent the next two and a half years fucking crying, you know? And eventually you reach a point where the tears are gone, but the pain that the tears are supposed to exorcise or get out of you is still there. And I'm, I'm journaling my ass off. And there are times... Here's another situation, and you just keep doing it. And eventually I got to the point where I was ready to move on. I was ready to, I could feel the burden lifted. There are times, for instance, when I would, and I've gotten so much crud out of my love cup over the decades that now my love cup, if I get a, a rock dropped in my love cup or a piece of uh, manure dropped in my love cup, so to speak, it doesn't take as much effort because it's not totally full already. I know how to get it out of there. Journaling, Sedona Method, uh, the accepting technique taught by... Uh, uh, Doreen Banizak, and you know, talk about all these in my book. There's a whole in my love cup. These are all other techniques. Um, but I, I used to very often couldn't fall asleep at night, right? I had so much going on inside of me, or I'd wake up in the middle of the night and my mind is just fucking racing. Still happens to me at times. Guess what? Right next to my uh, bed, I have a pad of paper and a pen, or I would have two. And I'd start journaling. How am I feeling? What's going on? Oh, that shit yesterday with Tom. He was such an asshole. But truth is, I was an asshole to him. Man, I feel disappointed in myself for hurting his feelings. Flushing out, flushing out. Oh, shit. I got to pick up my dry cleaning. That's what the second pad of paper is for. Now I write about that. Okay, pick up dry cleaning so that I don't forget about that. And I put that over there. And then I pick this back up. And Do you know how many times I'd wake up in the middle of the night or I couldn't fall asleep and I'd be journaling and I had my light on? How many times I would wake up two hours later, because I got to go to the bathroom and the pen is off the side and there's a pile of drool there and the light is still on. In other words, the journaling put me to sleep. I purged out all the things that were causing me anxiety. And I still remember that I got to get my dry cleaning, but I got all my journaling over here. I purged it all out and it was able to calm me and put me to sleep. So that's how we can use it in the small things. And the big things, it's not a one-night thing. It's not a one-week thing. You keep journaling. You keep flushing and flushing and flushing. And eventually you realize you become lighter and you are laughing more and so forth. Um, and last question of the show today is this one. And it's a great one. I love this. My mom abandoned me to terminal cancer. Now she wants to mend. How do I know to try? That's a great question. You were hurt, obviously. You don't indicate the age you were when your mom abandoned you to terminal cancer. And also you don't say if it was her terminal cancer or your terminal cancer. I'm going to assume, when I first read it, I thought it was her terminal cancer. She had terminal cancer and she abandoned me. Um, no, you had terminal cancer and she walked away from you. Holy shit. Now I get the gravity of the question. Once I realized you were the one that had terminal cancer. You had terminal cancer and someone you loved, your own fucking mother, the vagina from which you sprang, abandoned you. Oh. You have so much fucking rage inside you, I fucking guarantee. Not to mention extreme sadness, betrayal, disappointment. That's the shit. First of all, that's the shit that's got to come out. Whether you reconcile with your mother or not is ancillary to your own fucking healing. You have to, or even, you know, it's fucking tertiary. You have to get all that shit out of you. You have to, for your own fucking sake. I guarantee there's rage, maybe even hatred in there. Okay, but I'm gonna play the ball as it lies. You say, my mom abandoned me basically when I had terminal cancer. Now she wants to mend. How do I know to try it? My simple question, if you and I were having a beer together, I'd ask you, do you want to? Do you genuinely want to? Or are you doing it because you feel obligated because, hey, she's my mom. You're not obligated. But you are obligated to yourself to heal your own shit. You don't, you're never obligated to take someone back. You're never obligated to forgive, especially if not, they're not owning their shit. And that would be my next question. Is your mom owning her shit? And not just saying, yes, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. I feel bad. 
can we have a relationship? But where she's actually feeling the fucking gravity of walking away from her own child when her child had terminal cancer. Is she owning it at that level? Because if she ain't, she's blowing off your pain. And I don't mean the pain of the terminal cancer. I mean, she's blowing off the severe damage that she did. And if she's blowing that off, she's in it for herself, not for you. If she's blowing that off, she wants something out of it. She wants exoneration, perhaps for her guilty conscience. She's wanting to get something from you. Oh, I want to feel like I was a good mother. Or, oh, I want a friend. Or, oh, I'm getting old. I need someone to take care of me. There's something in it for her. If she's not fully owning it, fuck that shit. I mean, you can do it if you want. I would never judge you for it. You're the one that had to go through it. But you take care of yourself. You don't let her take advantage of you and try to get her own fucking needs met and you forgiving her so she can have her own feelings of failure assuaged. Now, in all honesty, if she's not owning it to maximum capacity and feeling grievously, horrifically guilty, I wouldn't let her back. Why? Because she's fucking using you. Now, the question is, if she is feeling all that and expressing that, then you really need to get your own feelings out in your own journaling if we, with your own therapist and so forth and probably need to get out a lot of your feelings towards your own mother. Then if you want to have a, a relationship after that, I, you'll know. You'll just know inside of yourself what your answer is. But right now you're feeling conflicted, I'm betting, because it's feeling you're feeling pressure from her to do something that potentially you don't want to do. You need to honor yourself. You need to heal your own inner self first. And then that path will become apparent. And there's nothing wrong with walking away from someone who has broken your heart, betrayed you, done some heinous shit. And that is clearly the case with a parent walking away when you had terminal cancer. People, this has been a great lightning round. Thank you so much for tuning in. To all of you needing more help, please download my book uh, or buy the book. Uh, There's a hole in my love cup. Or get yourself a therapist. There are so many great therapists out there. Uh, Dive into your inner work. Do that inner healing because there is hope. There is new life. There is new laughter. On behalf of Rob and KC, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Hold up. 